Welcome to the Different People Podcast, where we explore inclusion, diversity, and belonging in conversations about the often untold experiences of different people. These conversations are candid, spontaneous, and can sometimes be difficult. Yet they are necessary and critical to the healthy functioning of communities, organizations, and society as a whole. My name is Lisa Schmidt. I'm a leadership coach, a senior consultant in organizational development, and a professional speaker. And my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist, an expert in diversity and inclusion, executive coach, and a professional speaker as well. And we are your hosts. This podcast was recorded on May 17th, shortly after Ahmed Obri was shot and killed while out for a run. And prior to George Floyd being suffocated and killed under the knee of a white Minnesota police officer. And Breonna Taylor, shot and killed also by police while she was asleep in her own home. The conversation you're about to hear with Michelle Byrne, diversity and inclusion practitioner, explores the concept of white supremacy and its impact on people of color in our everyday lives. It's not what you might see on the news, but it is the experience of people of color and what we experience almost every day. But we don't discuss out of the fear of coming across as angry, sensitive, and unprofessional. In order to overcome everything from the unnecessary and unjust deaths to the ongoing injustices, we as a society, regardless of our background, need to have these frank conversations. For this reason, we've posted this conversation in its entirety, unedited, raw, so you can hear the buildup, the emotion, and the thought necessary to consider if we're going to make life better for all of us. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on this Different People podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome. Thank you very much, Raymond and Lisa. It's an absolute honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this. Um, so uh, let's just start off right off the hop. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are, how you identify um, uh, as a quote unquote different person? Sure. Um, my name is Michelle, Michelle Byrne. I, I am a diversity practitioner. I've done this for over 16 years. I'm a first um, generation Canadian of Caribbean ancestry, and I'm a racialized woman. I identify as, as Black and uh, as a woman. And uh, when you talk about um, being different, it's, it's funny because I didn't, I wasn't, even though I was born here in Canada, I was for the first part of my life up until about 10, I wasn't, I lived in the States. And I lived in a fairly, black neighborhood, middle class, and my color was never an issue because I went to school with people who looked like me. My teachers looked like me. I saw uh, many positive role models in regards to doctors, lawyers, um, engineers, so that there was never a difference. Hmm. The difference I encountered is when I came back to Canada and went back to Ottawa and all of a sudden, I was the only person in my class that was of color. All of a sudden, I was one of the few in, in recess on the playground. And then 
I really noticed that I was different. Mm. And when I was in Toronto and someone called me, you know, the N-word, and that I should go back to where I came from and ride a camel, I was like, what? There's camels in Ottawa? Like, you know, <laughs> I was like, what is That was meant on? for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember how I felt when that person, even up to now, because I wrote about it not too long ago, how I felt in that moment and that this person called me the N-word. Mm. To me, I didn't associate at that time that nigger meant a black person mm. because my mother and my parents, my mom and my dad, always said that that meant a lazy person. So therefore that that label did not apply to me or my family. So mm. when that child said that to me, I was in total shock. And how dare you? Like, who do you think you are? And the person just shrugged and walked away as if it was nothing. But I was totally um, disheveled, so to speak. And I had a conversation with my mother. My mother was angry. And I felt she was angry at me for even letting it get to me. But as I got older, I realized she was angry that here we go again. Here we go again. Here, here we, we go again. And I think that's many people's experiences. And when that, um, that recent event with the jogger happened, even though it happened in the States, it just hit uh, deep down yeah. um, sense of sadness because you're like, here we go again. For, for just being, for just being. And so when you asked, when did I notice I was different? I think when I was nine or 10 um, yeah. here in Canada, I was made to feel different. And the irony, considering Canada is known around the world for being a very inclusive country, yet that was the first time I encountered racism head on. Absolutely. So. I, I want to, I, I mean, that kind of hits me in the gut, uh, mostly because like there's a lot of relatability there. Um, it frustrates me when people think that we've come as far as we need to with regards to inclusion and belonging in Canada, uh, because we are a mosaic or a, a mosaic. Um, I think I think we're diverse, but that doesn't mean we're inclusive. And there's a huge difference between the two. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about if you feel things have changed? Whether you've heard that word again? I mean, you talked about the recent attack against uh, Ahmed in the States. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? I feel this pandemic, um, and like any event that happens, 9-11, the Paris bombings, London, and this, have sort of given rise to the polarity of racism. And, you know, it's like different groups have their day. And right now, um, with the 9-11, it gave huge rise to Islamophobia. And now we're giving rise to anti-Asianism and um, empowering people who would normally keep their perspective to themselves, um, giving them a voice mm. under the, you know, the blanket of these neutral laws that allows us to have freedom of speech. So, it goes beyond that for me because the freedom has turned into taking away the freedoms of others. Um, the most 
highlighted example is that young man losing his life. Yeah. But even here in Toronto, there's been many incidences where people have been attacked because they're Asian and accused of bringing this pandemic to the world. And, you know, people are dealing with an onslaught of um, very directed venom and hate that is not even rational. And these, and it's coming from people who intellectually should know better. And I guess I have conflicts when I have to go and teach bias, um, unconscious bias, because I don't think the neuroscience of our brain, <laughs> even though it's ingrained, you know, years and years and years, I don't think that's a good enough excuse for bad behavior. Yeah, that's that's baloney, I would say. As psychologists, this concept of, you know, like it's ingrained in us and somehow we need to tolerate this bullshit. I'm going to use that word on air because it is just that. It's bullshit. Um, human, brain, human brain is vastly capable of learning, is very plastic right into old age, uh, much more than we've ever realized. The ability to learn is always there. And I think that's a very sad excuse to say that you know, we need to be able to tolerate this because it's always been there. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit more about how this has impacted you personally as an adult? You talked about this experience as a child. How has it impacted you as an adult? Just (laughs) from university all the way up. You know, in university, I had to learn very quickly that in order to be um, evaluated based on my actual work and contributions, it was best for me to not attend tutorials. And, you know, I, I tested it out and there's, it was worth losing the marks for participation um, in order to have my actual assignments evaluated on its merit. And it's terrible to know, to learn that <laughs> in university, knowing that that's supposed to be the microcosm of free thought and freedom and intellectual freedom and you know, discovery, but it was a good lesson for me. And going forward in the workplace, you know what it's like, having to take on sort of a dissociative disorder and become another person Mm. in order to fit in, in order to assimilate to what you're supposed to be. And how many times have I been approached, oh, you're so calm, you're so well-spoken, all of those types of things because I don't fit into that mold of the angry black woman. Mm. And even though inside I'm screaming, (laughs) you know, Mm. what did you expect me to be? How did you expect me to act? You know, I'm I'm in a role, you've hired me to do a job and I'm doing it. How is it any different than my white counterpart? You know, you're not giving her or him those kind of accolades on, Oh, you're so well-spoken, you expect that. And I think that's a constant with most racialized people. And it goes back to having to be that whole thing ingrained in us that we have to be three times as good to be um, viewed on equal par. And that's tiring. And in the workplace, that's a constant. And then there are times when, you know, I think people retreat. They retreat in, it's one thing to be invited to the table, but it's another thing to have a voice when you're at the table. And in some cases, even when you have that voice, 
it's the scrutiny that um, you encounter. You, sometimes you retreat and it's, and it's better just to not say anything. And that's not the right way to go either. So, um, you know, Mike's, I've had to try to uh, navigate that landscape all the time. Like it's a constant. You can, when people talk about um, authenticity and belonging, I believe that that is something that's, a, that's flawed because being a racialized person, you never really get to be authentic. Uh, yeah. Lisa, how do you feel hearing that? Yeah. Well, you know, what, what strikes me, Michelle, and, and thank you for, for de you described that very well. Like as you were talking, I'm imagining meetings I've been in over the course of my life. And, you know, my, my uninformed lens might say, well, how come that person isn't speaking at the meeting? And I'm telling yeah. myself a story about how maybe they, you know, don't have anything to contribute and not even thinking that there's a whole other set of circumstances around feeling silenced everywhere that comes that, you know, is, is just now in the room in this particular situation. And it's making me think about something I learned recently, the language of code switching, where people will behave a certain way in one environment where, you know, you talked earlier about fitting in, but in another environment that's more familiar or with people who you know or in your personal life, you're, I don't know if a different person, you're obviously the same person, but you'll behave differently because it feels safer. Exactly. You know, when you come through the door, all of us, we come through the door from wherever and we take off our shoes, we wash our hands, and it's sort of an, an unveiling and unmasking of the persona that we had to have outside of our home. And it doesn't really matter if you're racialized or not. We all have different personas, but it's more compounded, I think, for first people of color because it's not it's all the time it's not just at work it's when you're out in the stores it's when you're like you're your poor children you have to be well behaved 24 7 you cannot act like a six-year-old <laughs> you know and when you come home you can go berserk but when you're outside you have to be more mature and it's not and it's not fair and that's something that you go through your entire life having to be someone else you talked about carrying a secret uh, uh, in our in our conversation off the air. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you know, I think most families, especially racialized families, and like what I was saying, having to be someone else. the The secret is that you know you're always told the laundry. You don't put your dirty laundry outside. You know, whatever's happening at home stays at home. But it's also a matter like culturally, you get to be who you really are at home and enjoy um, your cultural identity. And you shelf that when you go outside, but also some of the things that you're actually grappling with, you can't necessarily discuss uh, with people outside of your ethnical group or racial group. And it's, it's unfortunate because it's, it, we end up in silos and we're not able sometimes to progress even further than we, than we would like to because we all need to do this collectively 
However, it's that sense of betrayal. So you, you don't want to betray your community, even though it's nothing. It's, it's, it's just saying that, you know, I'm sick and tired of being treated like this because you don't want to hear you're whining, get over it. Slavery was 20,000 years ago. What happened to indigenous mm. people was 20,000 years ago. Get over it, move on. Get over it. Yeah. It, it is not over. That's the problem. No. The problem, we, I, I still believe that we live in a, in, a, in a country, in a culture, in a society, and in a world that, um, that supports white supremacy. Because if you think about what we see on television, when it comes to media, when it comes to opinions, the voices that are the loudest, the faces that are seen the most are those of, a, of white people, of a Eurocentric point of view. Um, we don't see any other perspective. And I think people of color, racialized people internalize that and see that as a standard when we think about what's professional. Uh, I've often spoken about how I felt I made it when I bought my first tweed suit. I grew up, <laughs> you know, I grew up in Tanzania and British culture was king, it still is. Uh, if you think about what we think about when we think of a British accent versus an Indian accent versus an Arab accent, you know, that speaks to our view of what we see is better than. And those all come from examples of white culture. But I really relate to this idea of the secret. And I see that existing in multiple levels. Like I think in communities, you can't really air your dirty laundry because all of a sudden you are people will automatically have a bias to attribute a negative quality about your community to you because you have a normal experience. You know, if there's a conflict, all of a sudden now, you know, those crazy Arabs, those crazy Muslims, those crazy black people, you know, they're conflict-based when they're just normal things. Uh, but the idea about not being able to speak about the hate that you felt, that secret that we carry with us is very powerful. Like it, like I do this work, a lot. My mother, and she'll be listening to this one. <laughs> but um, <Be> yeah, <laughs> she's okay with it now. But she would stalk my Facebook, and she'd be like, "I can't believe you posted that. Why are you saying that? Don't say that." When I first started to do this kind of work and would say things, she's like, "I can't believe it." Wouldn't even just be about comments tied to racism, but just an outspoken perspective. Where she's like, "You can't do that." People are going to like, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose um, uh, patients and clientele. People are not going to like you because you're calling it for what it is. And I would get calls and text messages and emails. I just saw your Facebook post. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. You shouldn't say that publicly. And I would say, those are things that we need to say. How can we not talk about this stuff? That's the real truth. And the truth is hidden. Always. Yeah. <laughs> And so we, li we, we live in this perspective that we have a world that we are now, you know, all perfect. We get along, you know, um, we have multiculturalism in Canada. You know, we don't have an issue. And we look down our noses at the States to say, you know, those Americans. And the interesting thing is I found more success uh, in being able to address these issues in the United States than I have in Canada. That's the honest truth. And why, and why is that? Sorry, why, why is that, Raymond? You know what? I think because people have been talking about it there much more. And here we have the sanitized view that we live in a multicultural world. And so we shelve this idea of talking about the injustices and equities. Michelle, what do you think? I agree. I agree. My experience in the States, even as a child, was I felt much more 
part of inclusive. I didn't feel a difference. It's when I came to Canada, I felt that difference. And um, only a few years ago, on my way from one building to another at work, I was attacked on the street, um, having racial epithets thrown at me. And it was that knock in the head that I needed, so to speak, that this is not over. This is a constant. This That was not even in truth. It was just last year. And, you know, it doesn't matter how you're dressed. It doesn't matter how you speak. So those sorts of things are, I think now more than ever, it's coming to the forefront, the ugliness of um, racism, what we really feel. And in regards to what you were saying, Raymond, about the secrets, I think it's because as communities, we keep these things um, in bottled up because we don't want to appear more other, more different. Mm -hmm. the, the constant pressure to conform to comply, to not draw attention to ourselves. But it's it's causing mental health illness, it's causing an erosion. And then when people protest, um, especially communities protest, they're seen like what you said, as angry, disorganized. What are they doing? Why don't they just write a letter to their government official? It's like we don't get the opportunity to express our frustrations. Mm -hmm. And I've heard too many times, oh, you know, you guys, like I mentioned earlier, when you do bring it to the forefront, that you're whining, get on with it. Yeah. So it's sort of a catch-22 for me, I find, you know, especially in this work, when I bring the historical perspective to the, to the present and how there is a resurgence of um, bad behavior or the same mistakes that we've done historically are still happening there's sometimes a lot of resistance and you use the terms um white supremacy and you know we talk about privilege and white fragility those are heavy words and those are courageous conversations and sometimes people aren't prepared to engage in those conversations because it, it starts a bit of blaming and and I know dealing with some adults and being in some of those conversations and seeing, you know, very professional people sort of kind of become very agitated and very uncomfortable. Um, I wondered to myself, why do I have to couch my language to make people feel comfortable when like what you're saying is very direct and and I'm sure when you're doing, I'm not sure when you do facilitation, if you can be that direct to say, hey, this is white fragility, this is uh, white supremacy, and all that colonization globally, that we're all conforming to one ideal mm -hmm. of behavioral norm. I don't know, like even as a facilitator, I find that challenging on how to, to get that message across. Yeah. And I think that speaks like, I actually, Lisa, I'd love your thoughts on how you feel about this, but I think it speaks to that sense of authenticity you brought up earlier that it's very hard to be your authentic self uh, when you are a person of color or a marginalized person, because you're constantly having to monitor who you are um, and doing this work. Like I remember after my Ted talk, 
somebody approached me from a uh, community uh, that was advocating for the rights of people of color. And they said, it was a really good talk, but I'm really frustrated that you just didn't come out and say more than what you just did. Uh, and but I, like, I was like, well, I agree with you. There's a lot more. Well, you said this, you could have gone further and said that. And I said, but how else, how else am I supposed to make change? And those of us who work in this, in this business of being able to make change, we, we are always having to moderate ourselves. Yes. Um, I have a colleague in the States uh, who's African-American and he often talks about um, uh, his fellow professionals coming up and saying what a great job he does. And he says, and I'm going to use his words. um, He's like, it's because I'm a good nigger. Mm. He's like, it's because. That's a common phrase. Yeah. I feel really uncomfortable saying that word, but but that's his word. And he says, because I don't rock the boat. And he's like, I have more to say. I have more to say, but I can't. And when we're trying to elicit change, we have to walk this balance. And when we do make that effort to walk this balance, we face, um, we face some, you know, kind of, we face difficulty from a majority community, but also from the minority community to say, you've got this privilege to be able to use your voice and yeah. you can't actually... You know, and now you're not, and now you're not using it. And you're like, but I wouldn't have the privilege to use my voice if I actually said everything that I was thinking. Yes. It's a balance. It's a balance. It is. And I, and I think, and that's where I want it. But but what I, what I keep in mind is that the anger that comes from marginalized communities or racialized communities, it's understood. But we also have to remember that people on the other side are human too. And they are struggling a lot with a lot of difficulties. There's, there's a lack of public education and awareness about how common these things are, how problematic that they are, how much they impact us. And so people are unaware. And so we go from zero to 80 very quickly. And for them, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I didn't realize this was a problem. And now you're saying racism and white supremacy. Like, I, no, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And there's a defensiveness that happens. And so the balance for me is being able to understand that we're dealing with fellow human beings, with real emotions, real thoughts, and, and sometimes ignorance. And like true ignorance, right? Like not like the maniacal kind where they're trying to hurt people, but just they don't know. People don't know. Lisa, how, how do you feel about all this as a yeah, white person? Yeah, well, as, as, the bo- as the two of you are talking, so first of all, thank you both, because I'm, you know, part of me is like, I don't have anything much to add, because it's so, it's so great to listen to the two of you talk about this with, with me listening in. But I was thinking about this idea, um, uh, two things. So one is the idea of where I've heard people talk about reverse discrimination or reverse racism. So for instance, let's say... Um, you know, a university might have a quota, uh, to use the, the language I've heard. Uh, we want X number of students from these different types of ethnic or, um, you know, international communities uh, to represent, you know, to create a diverse student body. And then the idea is that, well, you know, the, the, the counter argument, or I would guess maybe it's the, the white fragility argument. It's like, well, people should get in on merit not based on what country they come from or the color of their skin with the implication being that 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 what that that white people are better smarter 
right? That there's this, this, this bizarre argument that's made about, um, you know, I, you know, I as a white person no longer have the ability to just go marching into the things that I want to do because now I have this, this pool of people from all kinds of backgrounds that I have to compete with, right? There's this sort of bizarre idea that, that, you know, I, and I, I guess I have such a hard time with this idea that, that, I mean, I know we need to have ways of bringing people to the table, but that's not enough. Like people have to feel comfortable to have their voice at the table. And when there's this huge objection and hue and cry about, you know, we're, it's almost like, a, you know, like with immigration, we're letting too many of them in. And I, it's this, again, this coming back to this us and them and, and the whole performative nature of how we're, we see these injustices, we see these attempts to remedy these injustices, and yet the, the remedies are under attack when I think they're necessary. You know, yeah. I don't feel that I'm, uh, that I'm owed any privilege. I have privilege, I know that, but I don't feel like I'm owed it. But I would be, I mean, I have no idea of knowing what it would be like to be on the other side of, of the, like on, on, you know, of, of this conversation. Well, can I, can I stop you for a second? Can we yeah. go back to like the statement where you, I, everything you said is accurate and beautiful. Can we go back to where you said, you know, I feel like I don't have much to add listening into this conversation. Can you tell us how you felt at that time? Like, did you feel... Like, how did you feel when, you know, when Michelle and I were going off, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. How, how, how did you feel? Um, well, I, I guess I, I felt, I just felt, um, hmm, what did I feel? I felt, the only words that come to my head is I have nothing to add, I guess, because I don't, I don't, ha I don't share a lot. I mean, I share the experience of, of feeling like an outsider at times in my life. I share the, exper the experience of having to perform to fit, in, to fit in, but I don't share the experience of not, I, I guess at times I feel like I can have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, but not always. But just when you were talking about your friend who's the African-American in the States and, and also you and your TED talk, where you're, you're almost being chastised for not saying more, but you've actually progressed, you know, in your own sense of having a voice, but you're being asked by your community, well, if you're going to be talking about it, say more. It's like, well, I also have to navigate the communities in which I uh, connect with. Well, it's that and, interesting. And, it, and here's something interesting, because yeah. when you said that, yeah. the first thing that popped into my head was, well, that person should get up and do a TED Talk. Right? Yeah. Why are they asking you? But then yeah. as I start to go, you know, into more of my thinking, I'm like, well, they have reasons why they're not doing it that are legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's that sense of intersectionality, right? Like, cause like, like I, like the thing that I always consider is this concept of professionalism, you know, and for me, professionalism is tied to groups of people who are quite diverse and so is what I'm saying. And I think this is probably where my mother was getting at. You know, it's like, uh, you might not seem to be seen as professional if you relay truly how you're feeling. And I need to always be considering how other people feel. And so I asked you, how are you feeling? Because part of me didn't want you to feel left out. Part of me didn't want you to feel like, you know, there was an attack. No, uh, I didn't feel that at mm -hmm. all. I, I, I felt more a sense of privilege that the two 
of you are engaging in a conversation that's about your lived experience. So and Michelle, how would you, sorry to interrupt, but Michelle, how would you normally feel like this conversation we're having? Would you normally have it so clearly around around people who are not racialized? Hmm. It depends. It depends on that's a good question. It depends on the trust factor. Um, trust. And and that's the biggest thing. You know, earlier I mentioned a lady that I, a, a colleague that I was working with, and there's a few, and it was a trust factor, and it was almost like earning my trust. Yeah. Um, speaking up in a public forum to say, I as a white woman. And this has happened. It really hit me when I saw that certain groups have to have the conversation with their sons about being approached by the police. She goes, I have sons. And I would never think of having that conversation. I wouldn't be worried about them going in the car and being harassed. I'd be more worried about them encountering an accident. So, you know, when she was talking without any prompting me at all because I was at a different part of it was a very large meeting and I was at a different part of the table my respect for her grew exponentially because she got it she said you know I don't understand I won't pretend to understand what it's like to be in those uh those shoes but just hearing that made me like oh my gosh I couldn't imagine what it would be like for that to be my daily experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think for me now I've been more open mm -hmm. to having conversations because if you express to me that you're interested and you want to understand and that whole thing that sphere of influence um, I'll have that conversation because I think I find it very frustrating with I guess in a corporate way and even just societal with legislation and these neutral policies that are so systemic and a guy is just a panacea to, yeah, we're really like, to your point, Raymond, that um, we're a mosaic and we're fair and we care about human rights and it's an inclusive environment and blah, blah, blah. But to Lisa's point, when you're talking about reverse discrimination, which I, I totally don't believe in, I think discrimination is discrimination. Um, and having aspirational goals towards diversifying, it kills me when people attack others to say you're a diversity hire and totally discrediting the fact that their qualifications are off the charts, that these are qualified individuals. And so being able to express some of my frustration now, like I'm, I'm, I'm getting better, um, it helps to bring the conversation to be more empathy and more importantly, understanding as to what these challenges are. Understanding how when you say, oh, you're so articulate, what you're really saying is, I didn't expect you to be, and why? And even though it's not intentional, and it's not intentional to be, um, it's not a, a malicious thing, but it's so ingrained that you don't even realize it. So I find that having these conversations increases self-awareness. Absolutely. And, and so for me, you said something that was very critical is this concept of trust. That people, 
people who are marginalized don't always have that sense of trust. And I think, you know, uh, we're fortunate uh, to work with people like Lisa. Uh, Lisa, like, I can be fairly frank with Lisa, mostly because Lisa gets it. And there is a sense of trust there. Uh, but we don't always have that, that the ability to have that trust is really a privilege. And I think it comes with the status that perhaps you and I have been able to achieve, you know, professionally, Michelle, and not everybody has that. So I want to kind of bring it back to this concept of what we need to be empowering people to get. And it's these kinds of conversations that would allow that trust to develop. And also, and, and like I asked Lisa how she felt, um, you know, and she's like, I just feel privileged. But there's times, Lisa, where you said, I felt awkward. You know, we've had this discussion before where you're like, uh, I, don't, I feel awkward. I feel guilty. We've talked about this in a previous podcast. You know, we talked about the concept of white fragility and white guilt. But now you're saying you're okay. And so like there's a moving past that. And that's what I want to highlight. Well, it's, that- it's mixed. And sorry, I'm jumping in because I yeah. was just feeling my cheeks get hot while I was talking because a part of me was thinking, <laughs> what am I saying? Am I even making sense? Like I'm, 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 I'm part of me wants to be seen as, see, I get it. I get it. I get what you're talking about but I don't get it. And I have to own that I don't get it. And I, I feel a, a sense of vulnerability around that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said that. Thank you for saying that because, you know, Brandy Brown always says, you know, with courage comes vulnerability. And if people had the more honesty on how they were really feeling, like, you know, I, I want to improve. I want to get better. I want to see your perspective. And on the counter, for us to let them in, Yes, that's that's the other step. That's the other step. It's reciprocal. It is reciprocal. That's the other step is about allowing ourselves to be able to to let go of our inhibitions to talk about those secrets, so to speak, where we can be honest. Um, and Lisa, like, like I, I don't feel bad. I'm pretty sure Michelle would agree when you say you don't get it. Like that's that's not the problem. The problem is not getting it. The idea is that you're open to and trying to get it. Yes. You know, like, cause we all don't get things about each other. And most people are afraid that if I don't get it, I'll come across like a racist. I'm not, I'm not a good person. That's not the issue. The issue is that you're open to have that discussion. It's about the process. It's not about the actual understanding because that understanding comes over time. That relatability happens as long as we have that trust. Um, and to me, that was a critical piece in this discussion that we had today that I think is a good takeaway for people, uh, both in communities, but also in larger organizations to be able to have these kinds of conversations. I agree. And, and you know, thank you, Lisa. And it takes courage, too, on, on individuals like myself and Raymond to let you in. You know, it's unveiling those secrets also um, makes us very vulnerable. And that's why I was saying about the flawedness of the authentic and belonging because from the crib (laughs) you're taught not to be authentic from the crib very true very true michelle thank you so much for joining us i loved having this conversation with you uh, and with you too lisa these are kinds of conversations that don't happen often thank you so much thank you thank you for inviting me I really enjoyed it. And thank you, Lisa. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you both. I, I, feel, I feel that, you know, if, 
if we can have these conversations, we're helping open the door a crack for other people to have these conversations and the willingness of all of us to step in. Um, but you, Michelle, for, for really sharing some, you know, personal stories and the impact uh, is, is very, it's important and it's meaningful and I'm deeply grateful. Thank you for spending time with us. To learn more about our work and listen to other episodes, please visit differentpeople.ca. Post-production services provided by jonathanlay.net. And thanks to Blue Eye Music for our music theme. You can reach us all through the contact information in the show notes. And new episodes of the Different People podcast are uploaded regularly to Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Please join us again. And until soon.